Well, how many of you this morning are still in Thanksgiving mode? Anybody still in Thanksgiving mode? Joel, good. One person likes Thanksgiving, a couple more. How many of you have now moved on and you're in the Christmas mode? Wow. Oh, yeah, I got a woohoo. Nice. Um, well, I don't want to ever give or shortchange Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. It's probably my favorite holiday. Um, I love what it represents, giving thanks. I love the time of having a good meal. But I really love Christmas, and I love the Christmas season. I love all the things that are kind of wrapped up in it. I like getting to eat good food. I like spending time with family and friends. I like creating and remembering um, memories. I like the red Starbucks holiday cups. I like so many things. I like the music. I like great movies like It's a Wonderful Life. I like really moving, well-written movies like Elf. It's a joke. I have dry humor, so I'll warn you in advance that was a joke. Um, But no, I love Christmas for both all the common grace, even secular gifts, but also because it's a season that points us to Christ. It's supposed to be about Him and create worship in our hearts. So it is a great time of year. But it can also be a hard time of year. It can be a season where it's full of sadness and disappointing and discouragement and even depression. You know, we feel the pull of having to buy all these gifts and buy the right gifts and attend all the parties and the events. We need to be something and buy something and do something. We have to have the perfect family experience. We have to have good pictures for Instagram. We have to have lasting memories. And all of that can start to feel overwhelming. You know, there can even be relational conflict as you're with family. There can be sadness because someone's no longer at the table, either because of death or because of life circumstances and people moving. There can be financial stress. There can be lots of things that make the Christmas season hard as well as joyful. And this weekend I watched again A Charlie Brown Christmas, another great Christmas show. And it was a reminder of how well that little short film captured this struggle. If you remember the main plot of the story, so Charlie Brown is trying to remember the true meaning of Christmas. He wants to know, why am I always depressed when I should be happy? Yeah, there's a philosophical meaning behind the show if you missed it. So he goes to each person, and several characters kind of subtly answer the question of, well, what's the meaning of Christmas, or what makes us happy this time of year? So he goes to Lucy, and Lucy actually makes him the director of the Christmas play. She says, you need a project. You need something to do, something that will kind of get you into the Christmas spirit. He does that. That doesn't work. He feels depressed again because he doesn't do things well. well. Then he goes to Snoopy. Snoopy gives him a flyer and says, we need to get into the lights and the action and get caught up in the festivities. And Charlie Brown gets frustrated. He says, no, that's the commercialism I'm tired of. And then even his little sister, Sally, you know, all she's excited about is Santa and the gifts and the money, and Charlie Brown is frustrated by the materialism. It's not until the end of the movie, if you remember the scene, that Linus comes out and he gives us the real meaning of Christmas. He recounts the story of Jesus, the birth of Christ, and he points Charlie Brown and the story and us to the meaning of Christmas. So this morning, I want to be your Linus. I want to remind us of what Christmas is really about and what we can do during this time of year. So whether you're Buddy the Elf and you love all things Christmas, or if you're Scrooge and you can't wait till January, or if you're the Charlie Brown who feels sad and disappointed during the season, 
all of us need to navigate how do we fight the idols, potential idols of Christmas, and how do we also leverage and maximize the season? So I want to do that today by looking at Colossians 3, 1 to 2. So if you have a Bible, go to Colossians 3. I want us to look today and see how Paul, he steers us to seek what satisfies in every season. And then I want to close today by just applying it specifically to the time of year. I'll use Christmas and Advent interchangeably. So I'm trying to move from we just finished a three-week series on worship to next week we'll start a series on Advent. So this is a standalone, but we'll look at worship and then think about how do we use the Advent season well. So before we read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, you know, we're jumping into the very middle of the book, let me give you a little bit of context, what's happened right before chapter 3. So in chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, this is the end of chapter 2, Paul has just explained how an ascetic, kind of rules-oriented, self-reliant, pleasure-denying religion doesn't work. The people in the church of Colossae are saying, to be a real Christian, you should follow these man-made rules. And those are summed up here in 2.21. It says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So the false teaching in Colossae was that the stuff of this earth was bad, that we need to reject kind of creation and the physical and only think about what's spiritual. And that's what Paul's fighting against. So in the last verse of chapter 2, Paul says, those things or that approach, it's of no value. He says, none of that will help you grow. None of that will change you. None of these things, none of those approaches will satisfy the desires of the heart. Those things are worthless, he says. They're man-made rules that fail to address our hearts, even though they seem religious and seem pious and seem spiritual. So kind of leaving it there at the end of chapter 2, it actually raises the question. If those things don't satisfy, what can satisfy us? What can change us? What can grow us? What can recalibrate our passions and longings so that they aren't simply denied and suppressed, but the fulfilled in what's truly satisfying? Well, Paul's answer then comes here in chapter 3, verses 1 and 4. And to summarize that answer, he says, what you need to do is worship. The answer is worshiping Jesus. And that's great, other than the fact that I know for many of us that's a Sunday school answer. We think that's just something we say and that it's not truly satisfying. We don't think that's enough. You might even be tempted to agree with the people in Colossae and say, I get it, I believe in Jesus, I think those things are true about Jesus, but tell me something more. Give me something shinier. Give me something to do. Give me something practical. Our tendency is to want to move past Jesus. And the problem is we settle for very thin, very vague views of Jesus, or we kind of push him to the margins of our life. We still believe in him, but we don't think he can satisfy us in a deep or daily level. I want us to be honest about that because I don't think that it's that we truly feed on Jesus and then walk away hungry. I think we rarely feed on Jesus and then wonder, why are we so hungry? So my hope this morning in this text is to see that Paul, he wants us to feed on the fullness of Jesus, to be fulfilled by him. The answer to how we grow and how we change and how we satisfy the longings of our heart is intentionally 
setting our hearts and minds on Christ, letting our desires, our passions, our longings, and our needs be met in him. Only doing this, only knowing him, walking with him, and worshiping Jesus will woo us towards him and help us fight against our idols. It's kind of our big picture point for today. It's that seeing and savoring Jesus in everything and above everything will satisfy us and sanctify us or change us. So seeing and savoring Jesus is the one thing that will both satisfy us and change us. So let's get into the text. Colossians 3, let me read verses 1 and 2. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And it continues in 3 and 4, but I'm going to stop there. So here, if the goal behind Paul's letter to the church of Col- at Colossae is to grow in Christ and mature in Christ, the command he gives us right here for how to accomplish that, he says you need to seek after Christ. So our first point is we need to seek what actually satisfies. And we're told we seek what satisfies by seeking after Christ. Verses 1 and 2 provide two parallel ways of talking about one reality. So if you have an ESV, in verse 1 it says, seek the things above. And then in verse 2 it says, set your mind on things above. Well, that parallel, it's even more clear in the NIV. So this is verses 1, verses 2. It says, set your mind on things above. And then it says, set your heart on things above. So same verb, but it's trying to engage both our mind and our heart. So you can put those two commands together as one action. That we're being called by Paul here to seek after Jesus by setting our heart and mind on him. Or to set your heart and mind on Jesus, that's how we actually do seek what satisfies. Paul is using worship language here. We're to aim our hearts, our thinking our desires, and our affections, our passions, our joys, our emotions. All those, those things are to be aimed at Jesus. We're to treasure him, delight in him, and find joy in him. We're to see his worth both in everything, but also above everything. So to better understand this command, we need to know what Paul means by things above versus things below. So again, verse 1 and 2, let me read this again and notice the above-below language says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So what does he mean when he's using language of above versus below? We need to know that Paul is not contrasting earthly stuff versus spiritual or heavenly stuff. He's not saying the physical is bad or creation is bad. He's not saying only think about spiritual things. He's not saying you need to think about heaven 24-7. We know that Paul isn't saying that because in those earlier verses, so chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, he's just denied and rejected kind of that ascetic view that says creation is bad, the problem is out there, and I'm good. Paul says that's not true. The problem is inside of us, and those things outside of us are neutral. But we also know what Paul has in mind because if you look at verse 5 of chapter 3, He uses the language of earth and earthly things again. He clarifies that things of the earth, they're actually the sins of our flesh, and then he lists them. 
So the things above, it's just shorthand for saying Christ and his kingdom. So when you're told, set your mind on things above, set your minds on Jesus, what it means that your life is wrapped up in him and that you're one with him. And when it talks about earth or things below, it's shorthand for the world and our flesh and what's opposed to Christ. So it's Christ versus kind of our worldly flesh, not heaven or things above versus earth creation. So that's important to know. So Paul's command here is to think about Christ, the one seated in heaven. He wants us to think on things above, not below. But what does he mean then when he talks about this language of seeking or setting your mind and heart on something? That's not language we use every day. Paul doesn't use seek in the sense of go find something, go on a treasure hunt, go obtain something. Instead, he uses seeking in the sense of um, desire, long for, want something. They are to orient themselves and to prioritize and to delight in the things above. Another verse that might come to mind, kind of a common verse, is Matthew 6.33. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So to seek is simply to run after something, to go after it and not let anything get in the way. An example of what that could look like that comes to mind for me is I now have a 10-month-old daughter, Lily, and she's starting to crawl. And so what she does is she looks for the most dangerous, the most fragile things, and she goes after it. She's on all fours, but she makes a beeline for it. So I go get her, I bring her back to where it's a safe place, and immediately she darts for the dangerous, fragile objects. I don't know why that is. She's a sinner. Got that from her mother. Um, not true. My wife's not here. I probably shouldn't make jokes. Um, we're both sinners. But Lily, when she has something in her mind, it captures her attention, it gets a hold of her heart, and she goes for it. It doesn't matter how many times I try to move her. She is seeking after that object. So when Paul talks about seeking here, that's sort of what he's after. You've got to see something, you want it, you go for it. It's not just thinking about some things. It's not looking for it. It's desiring an object. Commentator Richard Mellick, he writes, the term implies more than a way of thinking. It includes our values and loves as well. It could well be translated as delight in things above. Now, I find that helpful. So when I read that, delight in things above or treasure things above. If you look in verse 2, he then repeats the same idea again. Set your mind on things that are above. So verse 1, it says, set your heart on things above. Verse 2, set your mind on things above. I think what Paul's doing is just asking us to engage our whole person. So both your thinking, what you're thinking about meditating on, that needs to go for Christ. But also your heart, your affections and your desires and your emotions and your inclinations, that needs to go for Christ. So our whole being is to seek after him. You see nearly the exact same verse. So in the Old Testament, we see this before. The first Chronicles 22.19 um, this is what Israel is told. Now, set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. So Old Testament, they were given the same command. Set your heart and mind and seek after God. Brian Hedges kind of summarizes this concept this way. He says, Paul wants the gaze of our souls to be so steadfastly and intently focused on Christ that knowing him is at the center of our desires. Pleasing him is at the core of our commitments. Becoming like him is at the heart of our ambitions. And bringing glory to his name is our deepest and most consuming 
compassion. That's what it means to seek after Christ, to set your heart and mind on him. I want to try to illustrate this one more way, because if we don't know what seek and set your heart and mind after Christ, if we don't know what that means, we can't do it. So one way I thought about it this weekend was how you compare kind of eating a regular meal to the Thanksgiving meal. So normally we know food is important. We're going to have a dinner on Tuesday. When we're hungry, we'll eat. The food's there, but we don't give it a lot of thought. We're not thinking about it all day most of the time. But that's very different when it comes to the Thanksgiving meal. So this week on Monday, our family started making all the plans. So we divvied up the side dishes, who's going to do what. We started talking about all the desserts and the pies that we want. We you know, cleaned the house, we got the table ready, we picked up all the supplies, we crossed all our T's, dotted all our I's, because we were excited about the Thanksgiving meal. We had all the foods, the foods and the desserts ready. We had important debates, like should you have ham at the Thanksgiving meal? Another, one more quick poll, should you have ham at the Thanksgiving meal? So how many people say yes with turkey? How many of you are wrong? Yeah, you should always have ham with turkey because Jesus was raised from the dead and made all things clean. The, the free lesson for day, today, not a part of Colossians 3. But anyways, so we were so excited about this meal. We talked about it, we thought about it, we prepared for it. And then the day of Thanksgiving comes. And so kind of from morning on, we're making all these food, foods. The house is starting to smell like stuffing and turkey and ham and all of these good things. And then people come over, we eat the meal, we have a good time, I dominate at cornhole, people go home with leftovers. It's just a great day. Now that kind of shows us one way you're just in desiring, you're thinking about, you're dreaming about, you're talking about a meal. That's what it means to seek after Christ. So we don't treat Jesus like a Tuesday night meal where it's, yeah, I'll get there when it happens, we'll eat, I know it's important. We're to treat Jesus like we treat the Thanksgiving meal, where we're looking forward to it. We're talking about it. It's on our mind. It's in our heart. And we're excited about it. That's what Paul has in mind when he says, seek after Jesus. Seek after the things above. It's less like just having a functional God that you believe in. But Paul wants us to engage our emotions and our thoughts so that Jesus is at the center. So we've now seen Paul's command he commands us to seek what satisfies. He uses above versus below language. He explains what it means to seek and set your heart. Well, then Paul gets into this idea of delight, not denial. So as I mentioned earlier, Paul is just using worship language here. In the three-week series we just finished, we talked a lot about corporate worship or kind of church congregational worship. Well, this passage is a good reminder that we also have a personal element to worship that we must personally value and trust and delight in and glorify God. We do that as individuals, as families, and then we gather and do that as a church. John Piper kind of explains what worship means here. True worship is based on a right understanding of God's nature and is a right valuing of God's word, so both understanding and value. True worship is a valuing and treasuring God above all things. Now the reality is that we are all created to be worshipers. We worship 24-7. There's no on and off switch to worship because we are always worshiping something. There's always something that we're giving our attention to, our allegiance to, 
and our affections to. We are always looking to find our security and meaning and purpose and identity somewhere. And that will either be in God or it will be on something else. Our heart is always steered in some direction. And that's important, again, as a reminder that we don't only worship when we sing or when we gather or when we read our Bibles alone, but we're always worshiping something. And so we have to think, where is my heart right now? What is my heart aimed at? What am I looking for for satisfaction? Is it Christ or is it anything else which we call an idol? And that can be a good thing or that can be a bad thing. But anything we start trusting in and looking to and depending on other than God, any idol, it will always enslave us, disappoint us, and rule us. Even the best gifts make terrible gods. You can take marriage, financial success, gifts, the Christmas season, even church itself. If we put the weight of our worship on those things, they will always disappoint us. When you start looking to other things to fill your heart, it actually bores an even deeper and wider hole. And then the things we think make us happy, those will end up making us empty. This is because created things were not meant to satisfy us. For example, in marriage, if you make your spouse your idol, you start expecting them to be something they were never created to be, and they become disappointing because you think they need to be your God. Or if we put our hope in financial success and wealth, all that does is create a, kind of a discontentment where we need more and we want more, and the stuff never satisfies. Or even sinful pleasures, the things that offer to us satisfaction, and they say, I'll give you what you want. All of those things end up either burning us or leaving us empty. And even the Christmas season, again, it can be a wonderful, joyous time, and I'm more like Buddy the Elf. I love Christmas and all that goes with it. But it can tempt us, and it can threaten our worship, and it can be an idol that steals our joy. If we look to the season itself, kind of the magic of Christmas, and we put our joy there and our hope there, and we say, well, all the relationships have to be good. And this month has to be like heaven on earth. And everything has to be perfect. And our family has to make all these good memories. And I need to get all the gifts I want. And I just need to be wrapped up in this blanket of coziness and merriment. If we think that and we believe that, we'll end up be, being disappointed. Christmas is good, but it can't satisfy at a deep level. So for Paul, the only answer that he knows to give for our idolatry is right worship. You, fall, you fight false worship or bad worship with true worship. Worship of Christ. This is why Augustine said, You, God, you have made us for yourself. And not until our hearts are resting in you, or our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So Paul tells the church here that our sin problems, our desires to grow and change, our longings for joy, and our search for rest, these are all at heart worship issues. Worship isn't separate and over here, but worship is connected to every one of those things. So what we need to do, what we must do, is seek and savor Jesus Christ. We must be satisfied in him and secure in him. Worship is simply looking at the glory of God, seeing God in his beauty and his glory and how big he is and how mighty he is and being drawn in. Worship is compelling. It's the thing that grabs our heart. It grabs our thinking, and it pulls us in. 
You've probably experienced that on a Sunday morning, maybe even this morning. As we're singing to God, as we're thinking about what we're singing, as we're thinking about the promises of God, as we're reflecting upon the person and work of Christ, we feel pulled in. That's worship. We're drawn to God because of his glory and his beauty. And that's what Paul tells us to pursue. Paul's point in these verses is that you will always worship something. Every week, every day, every moment, you are worshiping something. So make sure you're seeking after the one thing that can satisfy you. Set your hearts and minds on Jesus Christ. So in order to do this, in order to worship God, we must actually see and recognize his glory. You can't worship God unless you see who he is and know what he's like. If our worship of Jesus is vague, if it's general, it will always be replaced by something more pressing in our life, something that's clear, that's in front of us, that demands our attention. Worship isn't patient. It will quickly, quickly run to the next thing that gets a hold of our heart or grabs our attention. So here in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, when Paul tells us to set our hearts in Christ, when he tells us to worship, it's because the first two chapters of Colossians He's given us plenty of reasons why we should. Colossians 1 and 2 are all about Paul pointing to the glory and the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus. So for two chapters, he holds Jesus up in front of this church, shows why he's mighty, shows why he's deserving of our worship, and then he tells them, seek after this person. Find your satisfaction in this Savior. Set your heart and mind on him. It's not a command left out in a general place. It's he tells them exactly who Jesus is, explains why he's worthy, kind of lifts him up in our heart and in our mind, and he says, see, isn't he good? Doesn't he satisfy? Isn't he what you are longing for? Well, then seek after him. So to practice this this morning, I just want to take a few minutes, and I want to walk us through Colossians 1 and 2, and I just want to read some of those statements. So this isn't a time to check out my hope isn't that it goes in one ear and out the other. But as I just read these summary statements from Colossians 1 and 2 about Jesus, listen to them. Remember them. As I talk about Christ, see him, savor him, reflect upon what this means for your life. If you have a Bible, you can follow with me in Colossians. I'll just be going really from verse 13 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2. Or you can just listen and be engaged. But either way, in this moment, Set your heart and mind on Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 13, we're told that Jesus, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's freed us and he's transferred us into the kingdom of Christ. In verse 14, we're told that Jesus has redeemed us. He's forgiven us all our sin. Every sin is paid for and washed away by Christ. In verse 15, we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That Jesus becomes God incarnate, God in the flesh. And that's why we love Christmas. That's what we celebrate. The fact that the invisible God becomes visible. That Jesus takes the God, takes God and he makes him known to us because he lives a flesh and blood life. So all the mercy and the kindness and the gentleness and the wrath and the holiness, and the love, and the patience of God, that's all clearly seen in the life of Jesus. He shows us what God is like. God wants us to know him. He wants us to know him so much that he sends Jesus 
He makes himself incarnate in a human person so that we know clearly this is who God's like. So know me. Know me deeply and personally. The incarnation then is proof of God's desire for us to know him and know him well. So Jesus isn't just the mediator who is God for us, but Jesus is the incarnate Lord, God in front of us. So we worship him as the one who makes God known. In chapter 1, verse 16, it says that Jesus is the creator of all things. And then in the next verse, it says, he is the one whom all things point to and glorify. So everything that exists is meant to point back to Jesus. The largeness, the bigness of our universe is meant to say something about God. The beauty of the universe, the intricate details of the universe, that's the point to what Jesus is like, what his mind and his heart is like. In verse 18, it says that Jesus is before all things. Not only that he has has existed forever, but that he's the preeminent one. He's first in rank. All things follow him. Then in chapter 1, verse 17, it says that Jesus, he is the one holding all things together. So he not only creates the world, but second by second, right now, Jesus is on the throne holding it all together. And not just in a macro sense of the world is still working, but in a micro sense. In your own life, this means Jesus is holding things together. So if it feels like things are spinning out of control, if it feels like the floor buckles underneath you, if you're struggling with fear, worry, anxiety, sorrow, whatever it is, we look at this verse and we remember that Jesus is still on the throne. That Jesus is providentially ruling. That even though I don't have control, even though I think this might be out of control, I'm promised that Jesus is holding all things together. Every second, every day. When he wants the waves to stop, he just says a word and it stops. His will always happens. He might have started in a humble manger, but Jesus is now exalted on the throne. That's part of why we worship him. And Paul wants us to see this Jesus. We're going to keep going. So keep savoring and seeing Christ. In verse 18 of chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the head of his body, the church, meaning he not only rules us, but he's one with us. He's united to us, and he cares for us. It says he is the fullness of God. So Jesus isn't like a half God or a part God, but everything that's true about God, every reason we worship God is found and embodied in Jesus Christ. Verse 20, he is the redeemer and reconciler of all things. Verse 22, it says, he has reconciled believers back to God. So if you're here today and you have a relationship with God, if there's any peace between you and God, any knowledge of him, if you were able to sing to him today or pray to him today, that's because Jesus has reconciled you back to God. He's restored you. In chapter 1, verse 22, it says that he has made us holy, blameless, and above reproach. So in 114, it said that Jesus not only died, he not only shed his blood to provide forgiveness so our sin is covered, but here it says we also receive his perfect righteousness. That when we're united to Jesus, we are therefore made clean and holy and pure and spotless and washed. So do you ever get mental reminders of your sins? Do you ever feel your weakness? Are you ever aware of your wickedness, 
You're ever gripped by shame? Well, apart from Jesus, that would be the pit we live in all the time. That would be our constant reality. But this tells us that in Jesus, there's a better word spoken over us. That because when God looks at us, he sees his son, we are made pure, we are holy, we are spotless. We might not be in and of ourselves, but in Christ, we are above reproach. That means there's not a single thing that we can be condemned or accused for. In Christ, we are holy and loved. Chapter 1, verse 27, it says that Jesus is God's glorious mystery revealed. That the whole Old Testament is pointing to this coming Messiah. All of Israel awaited this coming king. And Jesus is the revelation to this world. In chapter 2, verse 3, it says that Jesus is the treasure house of all wisdom and knowledge. And I'd love to talk about that. That all wisdom, everything that can be known, everything that is known, all wisdom and knowledge is found in Jesus. In verses 11 to 14, it says that Jesus has circumcised our hearts through his death and resurrection, meaning that he's made new. So if you have been changed, if you are alive spiritually, it's because Jesus has cut off the heart of flesh, your heart of sin, and he's given you a new heart. In verse 14 of chapter 2, it says that Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us. So all of our sins created this bad rap sheet, and Jesus nails it to the cross, and he pays for every single sin. Every part of your debt is paid. And then the next verse, even beyond that, Jesus has disarmed the spiritual rulers and triumphed over them. So he not only pays for our sin, but he defeats evil and he conquers Satan. Verse 19 of chapter 2, it says, Jesus nourishes and he grows his body, the church. That's you. It says that Jesus loves you and he will care for you and he will feed you and he will not let you be forsaken, but Jesus is the one caring for us as his people. Finally, in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, it says that Jesus has been raised from the dead by the power of God. So Jesus conquered the one thing that no one else on earth has been able to conquer, death. He defeats death through his death, and he also defeats the one thing that empowers death, sin. Who or what on else on earth can you look to to do that for you? Only Jesus the resurrected, exalted, sitting on the throne, Jesus can promise you life then. Only Jesus can offer to you this restored earth where you will live with God forever. Only Jesus can offer a new body in that new earth. We're promised because Jesus has been raised and defeated evil that all injustices will one day be be made right. That sin and evil will be punished and crushed. That all our sorrows and tears will be wiped away. That we will finally feel whole and at rest. That sin will no longer nag at us or indwell us. That the world will have no need of any lights because Jesus will be the glory filling up the whole earth. And that for eternity, we will be stunned and we will be satisfied by new joys in God and given by God. That's what's wrapped up in this promise that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he offers us new life. And we could go on and on in the Bible, but those were just a few things mentioned in two chapters of Colossians. And so Paul puts those things in front of us and he holds up Jesus and he said, isn't he worthy? 
So seek after him. Set your heart and your mind on him. Know him and delight in him. Don't settle for vague notions of Jesus. Don't put him at the margin of your life. Don't just believe in him, but engage your heart, engage your mind, and delight in him and treasure him. So I want us to just kind of close by moving into a few applications. So how do we take this idea that Paul has given us to seek after Jesus, to worship Jesus, to delight in Jesus, and then how do we apply it specifically in the month of December during Advent and Christmas? As I mentioned, it is easy to get lost and kind of all that goes on in the magic of Christmas. There are so many things that steal our time and our attention, and those can become idols that we look to. But Christmas also offers a lot of opportunities to be pointed to Christ, to enjoy God's gifts, and to praise and thank him more. So how do we navigate this so we don't miss out on Advent, but we leverage it for all we can? So here are just three practical ways for how we might maximize the season. First, the truth is that Christmas does awaken a lot of wonder in us. During most of the year, we go through our normal life. You know, we're running our errands, doing our jobs, spending time with family, we're being on social media, we're being entertained, and it's easy to get stuck in the things below. It's easy to feel like this life has little transcendence to it. We even wonder, is there a God? Because all I see and feel is the mundane, ordinary part of life. And so one of the unique gifts about Christmas is that the sense of wonder that it awakens is a reminder that there is more, that there is a God, that there's meaning, that there's a significance, and we actually feel it. So wonder is meant to awaken worship in us. So don't only use that to have fun or have kind of a festive time, but also let the wonder lead to worship. And even as you talk with people, let the wonder they're feeling lead to conversations. That how can you live in a world where you do sense there is more, that there's something special about life, and we actually feel it tangibly somehow during Christmas. Use that for gospel conversations. Or as Jesus is more in front of people, through the songs we sing, through the movies and the TV shows we watch. Use that to talk to people about Jesus. So leverage the wonder of the season. Leverage the fact that Jesus is in front of people, both for your own worship, but also for your witness. Second, with all that's wrapped up in this Christmas season, and for all the reasons so many of us love this time of year, I think we can just grow in thankfulness, praise, and worship. There are certainly disappointments and distractions and trials during this month. It's not all you know, rainbows and butterflies. It can be hard times. But the reality is there are a ton of blessings, gifts, and joys during Christmas. There are clearly spiritual ones like Jesus being set before us. But there are also common grace gifts and blessings. So whether it's time with family and friends, the chance to be generous or compassionate to those around you, whether it's finding joy in Christmas decorations and lights and music or movies, giving and receiving gifts, making memories, talking about times from the past, eating delicious snacks and meals, all these things are blessings of life, and we should enjoy them. But the point is not that our worship stops there. Our worship should not stop in the stuff, but those things are meant to lead us to the giver and the creator and the redeemer. And that doesn't happen automatically. Our temptation is just to enjoy the stuff of this earth, just enjoy the gifts, and ignore the Creator. So my encouragement, my application is, all of those things you love during the season, let those point you to the God who gives them, the God who is the maker and the giver of every good gift. And then third, I encourage you, try to commit to some type of reading plan 
or an Advent resource that will help you focus on Jesus Christ. This is a great time of year to get into the Word and see who Jesus is. That doesn't have to mean you read only Christmas stuff, but my encouragement is to find some book, some resource, you know, read a gospel account, go through an Advent book as a family, do something that points your heart and your mind towards Christ. We might all want that during December, but what tends to happen for me is even though that's my desire, I get caught up in the busyness and the distractions, and then I look back at December and say, wow, the season that was supposed to be about Jesus actually didn't point me to him. So one way we fight against that is choosing this week, today, this is how I'm going to pursue the Lord. This is the book or the resource or the gospel I'm going to read because I do want to see him, and I want to know him, and I want to savor him. So my hope, my prayer coming into this this morning was that we would look at Paul's encouragement in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, and we would see that the way we grow, the way we change, the way we deal with our desires and passions, it's summed up in these two verses. It's seeing and savoring Jesus in and above everything that will satisfy us and sanctify us. There's no hidden trick. There's no secret sauce to Christianity. It's just Jesus. It's seeing him, seeking after him, and beholding him. And that should be true all year long. But Christmas especially gives us this wonderful opportunity to be pointed to Christ, to make much of him during this season. Pray with me. God, we know that we are easily distracted by other things, that our heart is prone to wander and run after all the things of this earth. So God, I pray for myself and for our church during this season that we would seek after and savor Christ, that all the gifts and the joys would point us towards you. So even now as we sing this final song, may it be a prayer of our hearts that during the Advent season, that Jesus would be our vision and our guide and our ruler and our king. We pray this in his name, amen.